Hey, Alexa, play the podcast Reasonably Sound. Getting the latest episode of Reasonably Sound. wife and I have an Amazon Echo. Actually, and this is, I don't know why I feel like this is deeply personal information I'm about to share. We have three Amazon Echoes. Uh, they're all over the house. And before you ask, yes, I am aware that Amazon knows everything about my life and is like listening to me sleep. No, I'm, I'm not happy about it, but we get all the bad jokes we want, no matter what corner of the house we're in. Did you hear about the dust bunny that fell in love with a Roomba? I didn't. It was swept away. Lol. Surrounded, as we are, by our Echoes, or by Alexa, and we do often refer to the piece of cylindrical plastic as her or she. So she is really only one member of our voice assistant squad. We both have Siri. Hey, Siri, can you call Molly? Calling Molly Templeton. Though we don't really make regular use of her services. I also have a PC with Cortana. Mostly I ask her to search for things and then judge her for returning results from Bing. I've got this for you on how do I configure my wireless adapter. And for travel, I went and picked up a Google Home Mini that I just keep in my suitcase. Hey Google, what's the weather in Indianapolis, Indiana like today? In Indianapolis today, it'll be partly cloudy, with a forecasted high of 49 and a low of 31. This is maybe going to sound weird, but after getting the Google Home, it really struck me that there's a kind of type to all of the digital assistants' personalities. And so I've spent the last couple months trying to get to know them a little better. I promise this isn't some Joaquin Phoenix-inspired digital philandering. I'm just really interested in who these voices are. I don't mean like what humans lent their larynxes to digital assistants, though that's also fun. So let's do a quick rundown. Siri's most well-known incarnation is voiced by Susan Bennett, who also does Delta Gate announcements. She's done VO for Coke, McDonald's, Discovery, and more. Hello, I am Susan Bennett. You probably know me. But as of OS 11, Bennett is no longer the default Siri. The new voice is a little more jaunty and, according to one linguist, a textbook Californian. I'm Siri, your virtual assistant. The same goes for John Briggs, also known as the voice of The Weakest Link. Of the nine contestants preparing for today's show, only one will take home the prize money of up to £10,000. And Karen Jacobson. My name is Karen Jacobson. I'm known as the GPS girl. Who were famous iterations of male English and female Australian Siri, respectively. Their voices have also been replaced as of the more recent Siri update. My name is Siri. But you knew that already. Your satisfaction is all the thanks I need. As far as who these new voices belong to IRL, it may be too soon to tell. Even Bennett and Briggs didn't know they'd be serified until they encountered their own voices coming from a piece of technology out in the world. But in a white paper for August 2017, Apple wrote, For iOS 11, we chose a new female voice talent with the goal of improving the naturalness, personality, and expressivity of Siri's voice. We evaluated hundreds of candidates before choosing the best one. Then we recorded over 20 hours of speech and built a new TTS voice using the new deep learning-based TTS technology. As a result, the new U.S. English Siri voice sounds 
better than ever. So, your new Siri is out there, somewhere in the world. Jen Taylor voiced the character Cortana in the Halo franchise of games. It worked. You did it. As well as the digital assistant of the same name. There are a lot of voices in my head, and Jen Taylor is one of them. She also voiced Zoe in Left 4 Dead and Princess Peach in Mario games from 1999 to 2009. Alexa is fully synthesized. Help, I'm a computer. And Google Home is actually something of a mystery. The perceived naturalness of its voice has led numerous internet commenters to guess there must be a human in there somewhere. But Google has been tight speakered about who, if anyone, that may be. Interestingly, though, while in development, Google Home was codenamed Majel after Majel Barrett, the late producer and voice actor and also wife of Gene Roddenberry, creator of Star Trek. According to her Wikipedia entry, Majel provided the regular voice of the onboard computers of Federation starships for Star Trek The Original Series, Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager, and most of the Star Trek movies. Lieutenant Commander Data, now located in holodeck area 4J. So, but, okay, beyond who the actual voices are, as in, like, what actual people they are, I'm interested in how they're meant to seem. Why did these voices make the cut? And why were an even smaller number chosen as the canonical voices for the characters that represent these digital assistants? Why is Susan Bennett Siri? Why is Jen Taylor Cortana? Why is Alexa Alexa? And why are all the default digital assistants women? And not just women, but female coding voices with a similar tone. Hello. Hello. Hey there. Hello. True, as we hinted, discussing John Briggs, you can monkey around with your settings and change Siri to be a bloke, but most people don't, I would wager. And the marketing material for all of these technologies make it very clear that we're to associate these products with their more feminine instances. This... I'm Siri. But enough about me. How can I help you? Isn't Siri to most people. It's a qualified version. It's male Siri. And to be fair, there is some gender essentialism in all of this. What is and is not a male or female voice is an interesting and important conversation, but it's one that's a little beyond the scope I've chosen for myself in this episode. What I'm most curious about is why all of these digital assistants are principally associated with, like, helpful mom voices and how those helpful mom voices contextualize and help sell their synthesizing technology. That's what this episode of Reasonably Sound is about. Digital assistants, their voices, and their quote-unquote personalities. First up, how did we get here? Like, why might there be a desire to build and interact with software that talks? And what sorts of technology paved the way for our stalwart, obliging computer moms? Hey kids, stop all the downloading.
Among the first speaking machines were various pipe organs and resonator devices from the late 18th century. We should think of these as speaking machines in a real rudimentary sense. They could produce phoneme-like sounds, um, vowel noises and whatnot, but they weren't exactly reciting poetry or reading people the weather. By the end of the 19th century, people were celebrating the phonograph as an incredible talking machine. Sound film, famously referred to as talkies, followed in 1927. But today, I think that we would place these in a different category. These are pieces of recording technology more than they are machines which synthesize speech. In 1939, Homer Dudley, working for Bell Labs, unveiled his circuit-based voter at the World's Fair in New York and San Francisco. This was the first ever attempt to create intelligible speech entirely from discrete, synthesized, acoustic components. The voter had 15 keys and required a highly trained operator with very specialized skills. Though Dudley invented the machine, it was principally operated by Helen Harper, or one of the many female telephone operators that she trained. Here's Dudley describing the operation of the voter while Harper performs it in response. For example, Helen, will you have the voter say, she saw me? She saw me. That sounded awfully flat. How about a little expression? Say the sentence in answer to these questions. Who saw you? She saw me. Whom did she see? She saw me. Well, did she see you or hear you? She saw me. From here, there are new milestones at increasing frequency. I'll mention the hits, but if you want a full account with endless technical detail of the early days of speech synthesis, I highly suggest Dennis H. Klatt's 1987 paper, Review of Text-to-Speech Conversion for English, published in the Journal of the Acoustical Society of America. Link, show notes, etc. So, after Dudley, there were various formant synthesizers, formant being a word for the band of frequencies which determines how a vowel sounds, but the first successful output from a computer-based phonemic synthesis program, meaning it could programmatically make all of the sounds required for speech, came in 1961 on the IBM 704, thanks to John Kelly Jr. and Louis Gerstmann. The 704 was the first mass-produced computer which could handle floating-point arithmetic. It took up an entire room, and its speech synthesis capabilities inspired Arthur C. Clarke to have HAL 9000 speak to the astronauts of 2001 A Space Odyssey. The 704 famously sang Daisy Bell. The first fully computerized English text-to-speech system came in 1968 from Japanese scientist Noriko Umeda and her colleagues, who demonstrated their system at the 6th International Congress on Acoustics in Tokyo. It sounded like this. Once upon a time, there lived a king and queen who had no children. Not a day passed that the queen did not say. By 1973, Umeda's work was put to use by Bell Labs to create their first text-to-speech system, which is a little more intelligible. I can read stories and speak them aloud. I do not understand what the words mean when I read them. In 1975, Seacelt in Torino, Italy, began development of Musa, which could speak and sing in Italian. And in 1976, Ray Kurzweil unveiled the Kurzweil Reading Machine for the Blind. This was considered the first commercial text-to-speech system. Hello, I am the Kurzweil Reading Machine. 
Welcome to Lady Manhattan Library. Speaking calculators and educational toys like the Speak and Spell were manufactured soon after by Texas Instruments and others. Deck Talk, a major leap forward in voice synthesis technology, and an implementation of Dennis Klatt's own Clat Talk was announced in 1983. DeckTalk is most well-known for one of its voice models, manufactured by Speech Plus and referred to as Call Text 5010, that serves as the speaking voice for theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking. Today, we permit this next great leap into the cosmos, because we are human and our nature is to fly. DeckTalk had many other voices as well, including, according to its Wikipedia entry, Perfect Paul, Beautiful Betty, Huge, Harry, Frail Frank, Kit the Kid, Rough Rita, Uppity Ursula, Dr. Dennis, and Whispering Wendy, who is terrifying. I am Whispering Wendy. Macintalk, the Apple speech synthesis system that shipped with the Mac OS beginning in 1984, was the first widely available standard OS software to do digital voice synthesis. It was based on software written by Mark Barton called Sam for Software Automatic Mouth. Sam sounded like this. Hello, my name is Sam. Sam was released two years before the Macintosh and was the first commercial all-software voice synthesis program. Steve Jobs and other Apple developers became interested in Sam as a replacement for memory-intensive pre-recorded sound files of a voice guiding new users through the operation of their cutting-edge personal computer. If Apple could synthesize that voice, they could free up a whole heck of a lot of space. And what's more, Jobs, always angling for theatrics, could have his new invention introduce itself. Here's audio from that very moment in 1984. For the first time ever, I'd like to let Macintosh speak for itself. Hello, I'm Macintosh. It sure is great to get out of that bag. And accustomed as I am to public speaking, I'd like to share with you a maxim I thought of the first time I made an IBM mainframe. Never trust a computer you can't with. Obviously I can talk, but right now I'd like to sit back and listen. Now, the 30 plus years since has been a real hasty mishmash of developments, breakthroughs, and benchmarks, synthesized voices in video games, home computers, telephone systems, in toys, calculators, and assistive technology. Turn-by-turn voice navigation has been a norm for only about a decade, and Siri was released in 2010. Three years ago, I got my first smart speaker. To count as a gargoyle, a carving on a building has to have a water spout in it. They literally gargle. Other such carvings are called grotesques. So... The voice, in general, is often something of a metonym for the whole body that produces it, or the the liveliness that's contained within that body. The voice is, if you will forgive the moody poetry for just a moment, the breath of the soul in a lot of ancient literature. In some mythological traditions, when things are given a voice, especially animals, that becomes synonymous with them being given a soul. It's bringing them not just to life, but to a higher order of living. The animal who speaks is often much closer in temperament to a person than to their non-speaking kin. A voice seemingly unlocks an intelligence or a rationality. And of course, the most powerful deities, supreme intelligences, are sometimes nothing but a voice. Having surpassed the need for a bodily form, they might deliver their edicts as pure soul, pure power, pure and just voice. 
which is all to say we may view a voice as an expression of agency. And the metaphor translates to common usage. We say of the oppressed or the disenfranchised that they do not have a voice, when really we're talking almost not at all about actual literal voices. So maybe all this provides some helpful context for the pursuit of making machines talk, which it seems scientists and engineers have been doing for about as long as there have been machines. Like with mythological creatures, a voice gives a machine agency. It makes it more than a tool to be operated by humans. It becomes an assistive device, a collaborator, but it also becomes its own entity. A voice helps to forgive or reinforce any personification operators may be inclined to commit. But unlike talkative creatures, the speaking machine isn't elevated to the status of a rational human. Or it isn't anymore. At first, the speaking machine may have been regarded as a marvel, capable of imitating people, making a show of a, achieving some human ability. And in fact, the voter's voice was nicknamed Pedro by Helen Harper and her operators after Dom Pedro, emperor of Brazil, who, according to legend, exclaimed, My God, it talks, upon hearing an early demonstration of the telephone. But it's different now. Machines don't need any help appearing intelligent or appearing to encroach on human ability. We see in them endless expertness and a lightning-fast calculating rationality born from a set of instructions called literally logic operations. A voice doesn't suggest the same agency it once did when emanating from a machine. Instead of elevating an entity which needs no further elevation, a powerful technological agent's voice sort of declasses it. A speaking piece of technology is given an opportunity to focus to symbolically abandon its ever-churning processes and visit with its slow, meaty users for just a sec to say, Hey, sup? Not much. A voice's humanizing tenor then has opposite effects, depending upon where it's applied. A speaking voice elevates an animal or a simple machine, but denigrates a complex machine. It masks the vast ability of networked technology, machine learning, and AI, and brings said technology down to a human level. Oh man, I wonder what paradoxical emotions will arise when Boston Dynamics beast-like automatons are given the ability to voice their intent or report the weather on whatever day their uprising begins. Okay, we're digressing. Allowing some piece of technology a voice pushes it just one step further towards the future that many of us joke about fearing. A future where machines are separate from their creators and operators. Meaningfully independent in a way the voter was not. This is how a voice gives a piece of technology personality or personhood. A voice makes some black cylinder, a gray statuette, a mobile phone, or an OS, a simulacrum of a person. An individual instanced from an infinitely repeatable system. As Tao Fan puts it, a voice is a way to make the algorithm material. But, okay, if a voice makes an algorithm material... What importance may we find in that voice's material qualities? There's something you maybe noticed about the computronic larynxes that we heard along the way. 
Hello. 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 And then suddenly. Hello. Why, at some point, did the voice of practical technology switch from that of a man to that of a woman? Some guesses after the break. To be clear, there were female coding computer voices before Google Maps. For what it's worth, I named mine Brenda. We also mentioned Deck Talk's beautiful Betty, Rough Rita, Uppity Ursula, and the very charming Whispering Wendy. Amiga OS from 1985 also had a female option for its onboard voice synthesizer, and Macintosh, through its many iterations, has had several female voice options. But during the early and early middle development of speech synthesis, all the standout examples and standard configurations aped dude-like voices. As far as I can tell, that shifts to more female voices when, instead of doing the complex programmatic work of making machines talk, developers were able to construct, and perhaps consumers were willing to accept, the illusion that those machines were themselves simply talking. When we transition from speech production as novel technological marvel to pervasive assistive feature, we also transition from a male voice to a female voice. So like, here's what I mean. The voter represents one type of maximum labor, a cadre of highly trained expert operators producing synthesized speech in real time. Mid to late century voice synthesizers represent a more abstracted, front-loaded labor. Their highly electronic twinge speaks to the effort required to programmatically wrangle square and pulse waves, bursts of noise, and various resonances into something resembling human speech. The labor here is at a distance, not quite so visible, but still palpable in the system's struggle to be intelligible. I do not understand. Late voice synthesis is, if not actually effortless, seemingly so. Tonight, you can expect clouds with a low of 43 degrees. The quality of its voice mirrors the ideal exertion of the people using the technology that synthesizes that voice. Alexa should be as easy to understand she is to operate. She should have as easy a time talking to you as you do to her. And I would say that we got there. Digital assistants talk with much of the natural prosody of humans, so much so that there is a mystery about whether or not one of them is, in fact, an actual human voice. Right now it's 48 and sunny. Their speech production is no longer visibly or sonically labor-intensive. It's not a technological marvel to behold, but another aspect of their multifaceted interaction with humans that will dissipate into the ether of their functionality. Their voices must be nice, but invisible, if you'll forgive the mixing of sense metaphor. Conjuring at once no particular person, but also a particularly nice person. This is doable only, or maybe most easily, with a female voice, I think. 
You might see a bunch of technological or sonic justifications for the prevalence of female voices like smaller speakers are better suited for higher frequencies, or older folks and the hard of hearing have an easier time hearing female voices, or everyone has an easier time hearing a female voice, especially in noisy environments. Um, all of these justifications are either false or they like straddle the malarkey line. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to read more. The principal association of female coding voices with digital assistants is more about what they mean than how they function. It's a norm that reaches far, far back beyond Helen Harper and her core of female operators to some ideal of the operator. The pleasant, disembodied feminine voice carried along by inscrutable technology who will helpfully connect you with what you need. In 1878, Emma Nutt became the first female telephone operator hired by Alexander Graham Bell at the Edwin Holmes Telephone Dispatch Company in Boston. Before then, switchboards were manned by boys who had previously worked the telegraphs, but the transition to spoken communication was rough. According to the New England Historical Society, tiny men were rude to callers. They liked to play pranks, and they would swear a lot. Hoping to class up the joint, Belle hired Emma, and hours later, her sister Stella. Where boys would be boys, the expectation was that women would be ladies. Polite, deferential, and pleasant. And sure enough, the New England Historical Society says Emma was patient and soothing, and spoke in a cultured voice. The transition to female telephone operators was quick and pervasive. Within 12 years, it was a majority female workforce and made up entirely of young, white, non-Jewish, single women. Applicants were required to be between 17 and 26 years old and unmarried to get the job. Around this time, alongside operator, secretary also made a similar transition, becoming increasingly associated with women in the late 19th century after the invention of the key punch machine and the typewriter. There's a read on this history which concludes that these women were responsible for making various communication technologies viable, or at least proved that they were workable. You could probably make that case on the basis of wages alone. Female operators were cheap, sometimes half to a quarter the cost of male labor. But beyond that, the qualities expected of female operators were required by and became the qualities of the technology they operated. Helpful, pleasant, conventional, and available. Digital assistants are, I think, some evolution of the helpful, pleasant, conventional, available operator. They communicate, schedule, inform, find, search, remind, reassure, and entertain. They're operators, secretaries, nurses, librarians, and mothers. Though they, in a strict sense, know nothing, and in a broad sense, feel nothing, they perform various kinds of knowledge and emotional labor, which has historically been associated with women. To sell the idea that your digital assistant will reliably do this work, I think it stands to reason that, as a corporation, you'd try to simultaneously sell the idea that it is a she. But okay, maybe you're not having it. No way does the success of a technology depend on some bizarre norms somehow connected to Emma and Stella from Boston two centuries ago. Well, before you call the anecdote police on me, it turns out there is some research uh, that we can talk about. I'm going to take you through it, but instead of calling out each and every author and paper, I'm going to put links to everything in the show notes. 
First, it's just a voice, you may say. Who is going to glean so much about a personality, like if they're kind or trustworthy, from a voice? It turns out people actually do assume a fair amount about a speaker's personality, whether they're friendly, trustworthy, intelligent, etc., from just listening to them talk, even if them is a robot. But then you may say, well, okay, but whatever. A voice doesn't have a gender, especially not a synthesized voice. So all this stuff about like, oh, they have this personality because they sound like this gender. They're not even that gender. And hey, you may be right. But it turns out that almost all of us, quote, respond to the minimal manifestations of gender in text-to-speech systems as if we were interacting with a real person who was male or female. So, in other words, even if Google Assistant tells you it has no gender, if it sounds like a lady, we're going to think of her as one. I'm all-inclusive. Researchers have also found that while male voices are considered more forceful, people tend to find female voices more trustworthy. Both men and women find higher-pitched voices generally more pleasant, though not necessarily more attractive. Except for one study, that honor almost always goes to low, male-coding voices. People are more likely to follow suggestions made by male voices, but they're more likely to believe and remember information related by female voices. In one study done on multimedia learning scenarios, most students better remembered lessons given by a female voice unless the female voice was teaching about something that traditionally codes masculine, for example, math, and the particular student has a strict sense of gender conformity. Basically, I think this means misogynists have a hard time paying attention, which, I mean, you know, color me surprised, I guess. But none of this is like hardwired. There isn't some fundamental magical thing about the human brain or a lady voice that just makes you pay attention. It's, as the last paper puts it, a set of social factors and social motivations. As they say, it can be assumed that the speaker's gender may trigger gender stereotypes and other social principles, which in turn influence the perception and evaluation of the speaker. As a result, either a male or female speaker may be seen as a more knowledgeable or likable person, depending upon the topic and on the learner characteristics. So, basically, people have expectations, and how they rate a person by their voice in a situation can depend materially on those expectations. So, now that you know this, let's say you're designing a digital assistant, and you want it to sell like gangbusters. Will you, a consumer product manufacturer, aim to thwart expectations or confirm them? Sit comfortably within them? I guess the nature of a podcast means that this is a rhetorical question. So social factors and motivations are used as guidelines for design, which then reinforces those same social motivations, creating a feedback loop. For example, Phil Shin, a speech application developer who makes those telephone-based automated interactive voice response systems, said to Speech Technology Magazine that those systems are usually female because, quote, the design community wants to make it sound like the caller is dealing with a live person and most customer service representatives are female. Also, there's the gender role of a female secretary answering the phone, 
When the application calls for a caring, nurturing role, he says, that is best left to a female voice, while technical issues are often better suited to a male voice. Ugh. That must explain why all the people who call me to tell me my PC has been infected with a virus are dudes. And finally, a study at Carnegie Mellon tested user response to several voice designs for, quote, receptionist robots, which should be able to communicate effectively with the visitors to listen actively to their problems, showing empathy and providing help to be polite and friendly and to possess an appropriate sense of humor. They designed two robot personalities based mainly on differences in their speaking voice, both female coding because their hypothesis was that a high-pitched female robot would be perceived as generally more attractive, but also more emotional and possibly more extrovert. Fair, a digital assistant isn't a full-blown robot yet, but its voice, far from being another detail of its design, an arbitrary characteristic which might as well have been different, allows it to fulfill the expectations it's marketed with. In the case of digital assistants, sex may not sell, but perhaps symbolic gender does. My name is Mike Rignetta, and this podcast has been Reasonably Sound. You can find Reasonably Sound on Twitter and Instagram at ReasonablySND, and me on Twitter and Instagram at Mike Rugnetta. If you like the show and want to support it, you can donate some of your hard-earned cash per episode at patreon.com forward slash Reasonably Sound. Patrons get access to the Reasonably Sound Slack, newsletter, sound effects collections, and behind-the-scenes stuff like in-progress scripts, bloopers, and other things that don't make the final episode cut. Even a dollar an episode makes a huge difference. You can also support me in all my internet endeavors with a monthly donation via Kickstarter's new subscription creator support service, Drip. Drip subscribers get access to work-in-progress material, including, but not limited, to reasonably sound. You can find me on drip at d.rip forward slash Micrognetta. A big old thanks and a shout out to all of Reasonably Sound's patrons and subscribers with double extra special thanks to Keith Brony, Johnny C, Trey Connolly, and Joe Krasinski. But of course, however you can support the show is greatly appreciated. Share it on social media, tell your friends about it, write a review on iTunes, or even just come by and say hey on Twitter. Reasonably Sound's theme and act break music are by Will Stratton, and its visual design is by Tita Tepp. Hello. 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 Hey there. Hello. Goodbye.